Let's pray. Oh God, You do not always get Your way. Laura is right. You'd rather have us free than safe. If there could have been another way besides Calvary, surely You would have found it. We want to understand. Teach us today. In Jesus' name, Amen. A few days ago, a Texas man, Daniel R. Leach, went into a theater in one of the suburbs of Houston. He went there so that he might watch Mel Gibson's cinematic depiction of the last 12 hours of Jesus' life and death. You probably have heard of it. It's called The Passion of the Christ. Leach was deeply moved as he witnessed the bloody reenactment of, of, of Jesus' scourging and then His crucifixion. So moved, in fact, that after the movie was over, he went and found a family friend of his and they had a long talk together. And after that conversation, Daniel R. Leach went to the Fort Bend County Sheriff's Department and turned himself in for a murder he had committed back in January. Murder, the authorities had ruled a suicide. He confessed. Why? Because he watched the death of Jesus. What is there about the death of Christ that is so compelling to so many of us? I mean, how do you explain this? How does it draw from our guilty hearts an, an honest confession? Does it have anything to do with all that blood? Open your Bible with me, please, to the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 27. Matthew, chapter 27. While you're turning to Matthew 27, this may come as a surprise to you, but Mel Gibson actually left some blood out. And I say surprise because there have been so many reviews and reactions that have bemoaned for what some, for them at least, is an excessive portrayal of blood in this movie. But Mel Gibson, Gibson actually left some blood out. In fact, there is, there is blood in a line of the script that got omitted. I want to take you to the line that Mel Gibson left out. Open, the, open your Bible, please. The Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 27. I'll be in the New International Version. Whatever version you have brought, I'm glad you brought it. If you don't have one, there's a Bible right in front of you. And in just a moment, we'll put the words on the screen as well. Matthew, chapter 27. Early Good Friday morning. All right? That's the setting. Let's pick it up in verse 24. But when Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere and that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and he washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. And all the people answered, Let his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them. 
But he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. The missing line, his blood be on us and on our children. Now, I can understand why the director chose to leave this line from the story out of his film. As it is, the most controversial charge leveled against the passion is that it is anti-Semitic. Or at the least, it fuels anti-Semitism, which would be a bigotry and a hatred against the Jews. Frankly, I don't think that is a fair charge. But I can certainly understand how a cursory reading of the gospel, the gospel of John in particular, and a cursory viewing of the passion of the Christ could lead one to conclude that both are anti-Semitic. Though we all do need to be reminded that the capital H hero and all the little H heroes in the Gospels are all Jews. Jesus, Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, John, Peter, Mary, Mary, the disciples, et al. So what are we going to do with this line that Mel Gibson left out? His blood... Be on us and on our children. Now, I know the rabble, the rabble. And by the way, we must never allow that whipped into a frenzy rabble to become the spokespersons for the entire Jewish people or the Jewish nation. A people beloved of God and chosen from the very beginning to be the messengers of the Messiah. I know the rabble meant those words as a curse. But in fact, I would like to suggest to you that Those same words offer a compelling proclamation about the salvation of the entire human race. In fact, that point is so critical that I want to put it right here at the top of our study guide. And so would you take your study guide out, please? There should be a study guide in your worship bulletin when you came to worship this morning. Those of you, by the way, who are watching on uh, television right now, if you go to our website, you can find this study guide waiting for you. Go to, uh, in fact, I'll put it on the screen here, pmchurch.tv. Then click on to the Christ of the Passion. That's this particular series. And then you want to click on to the line Mel Gibson left out. Do a click there and the study guide that I'm holding in my hand right now will just instantly appear on the screen in front of you. And you can actually go through this study guide with us. The point is so critical, it's there at the very top. Would you fill it in, please? Matthew 27, 25, the line that got left out. Fill it in, please. His blood be on us and on our children. Right in the word blood. Now, what's the point of this? Ah, keep writing. That cry is a compelling proclamation of the salvation. Right in the word salvation. I believe it's a compelling Declaration of the salvation of the human race. One more line. They meant it as a curse. Right in the word curse. They meant it that way. But I believe we must embrace it as a prayer. Right in the word prayer. I want to explore that line. The meaning of that line that got left out. How can this line have any meaning for us in the third millennium? Well, I I need to tell you. And in fact, would you just keep writing, please? One more line. The Bible is big on blood. No question, saturated through Scripture. Somehow blood has become a code word for divine love poured out. Sometimes the blood is sprinkled, sometimes it is splashed, sometimes it is poured. 
code word. What I want to do for the next few moments in rapid fire sequence, go through seven vignettes of the blood in Scripture. Scribble them down. I'm going to give you the references. Let's take, take a look at these seven. For every reference, you're going to have to write in the chapter. We've got the verses there for you, but write in the chapter. Let's go back to the very beginning. Let's go to the book of Genesis. Write it down, please. Genesis chapter 4. Genesis 4. Write in 4. The human race has fallen. Only four people in the human race. When this story starts, and there they are gathered at the gates of the primeval garden. Genesis chapter 4, let's put the verse on the screen. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, but Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. Okay, obviously you have to kill something in the flock in order to get what he brought. So there's been a death. Now, how does God respond to that? Notice the next verse. This would be verse 4. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. The very fact that Cain's offering, eventually Cain comes to the point where he's not going to give that which has blood on it. The very fact that Cain is marked for the rest of his earthly sojourn is indicative that blood underscores the divine insistence that it will take a sacrifice to somehow, mysteriously, Save the human race. In fact, would you write that in, please? Sacrifice. That's what we learn in the first encounter with blood in Genesis 4. Sacrifice. That's what, brought, what is brought to our attention through the blood. Somebody else's blood will save me. That's the first book of the Bible. Let's go to the second book of the Bible. That would be Exodus. Right in the chapter, it would be Exodus chapter 12. Exodus 12. Familiar story, midnight race out of Egypt in the mighty, mighty Exodus. But everybody remembers what had to happen before they were liberated. Let's, let's put it up, Exodus 12, and let's read. God, through Moses speaking, the animals you choose must be year-old males without defect. And you may take them from the sheep or the goat. Okay, it can be a sheep, it can be from the goats, that's all right. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month. When you would continue now to celebrate the Passover, when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Blood, blood, blood. What's up with the blood? Keep reading. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. What in the world is God intending? One more verse, verse 13. And the blood, God says, will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. The firstborn will be spared. Now, I don't know about you. I happen to be a firstborn. By the way, how many here? How many here are firstborn? Be, be proud to admit that you're a firstborn. All right? Yeah. I don't know about you, but if I had been living that midnight moment, how many times would I have made a return trip to the lintel of our humble little home and just feel, is, is it coagulated? Is there anything there, Daddy? Are we under the blood still? Wouldn't you have wanted to make sure? It's your life. What's the sign of the blood? What's the symbol of the blood here? Would you write it in, please? Deliverance. Deliverance through the blood. His blood be on us and on our children. Somebody else's blood will save me. That's Genesis. Somebody else's blood will deliver me. That's Exodus. Let's go to Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 17. Right in the chapter 17. Let's go to Leviticus 17 verse 11. For the life of, the, of a creature, God says, is in the blood. And I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. 
What's the symbol here? Uh, write, it, write the word in, please. Atonement. You say, Dwight, but what's the meaning of atonement? Ah, simple. Just divide atonement up into three parts. And then would you put those three parts in your study guide? At one mint. In some sort of, again, mysterious way. When, when, when the blood is shed, it is a symbol of at one with God Almighty. At one mint. His blood be on us and our children. It's going to take somebody else as a sacrifice to save me. It's going to take somebody else to deliver me. It's going to take somebody else to bring me back to at one minute with God. Now let's, let's hurry through the Old Testament and let's come to the great gospel prophet Isaiah. Would you write this in please? Isaiah 53. By the way, we just began today, this week. One of our own professors right here at Andrews University, the theological seminary, has written a set of studies that the whole Seventh-day Adventist church all over this world is going to study now for the next few weeks from the book of Isaiah. And I'm delighted to tell you that Roy Gain is a member, Roy and Connie, active members here in the Pioneer Memorial Church. So we're going to study the book of Isaiah now. Let's go to Isaiah 53, the great messianic prophecy. Isaiah 53 and let's read the verses backwards. Would that be all right? Seven, six, five. Don't read them five, six, seven. Let's read them backwards. Seven, six, five. We're looking for metaphors that are captured by the single word blood. So let's start in verse seven. Isaiah 53, verse seven. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. Oh, our praise team led us in singing to the Lamb of God. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Of whom does this speak? Let's go back to verse 6. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What's going on here? Let's go back to verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And say it out loud with me, church. By his wounds, we are healed. Here comes another metaphor for blood. Would you write it in, please? Healing. Somebody else's blood is going to heal me. And you say, oh, yuck. Come on, pastor. Blood heals? Well, of course it does. Why do you think the Red Cross was here this last Wednesday in this church? The reason I bring the Red Cross up is because this time around, I happen to give some blood. If I hadn't given, we wouldn't have even noted that they had been here this last <laughs> week. But because I gave this time. Did you give? <laughs> I didn't think you did. All right. So I want to bring them up. So the Red Cross is here. Why are they here? Because there's healing in the blood. That's why. So I go down there. I tell you, one of the nurses, oh, maybe it was Melissa. I am so proud of our, our, our university students. You know, we had some students there from 7 in the morning. Melissa was one of them. From 7 in the morning all the way through till 10 o'clock when the Red Cross packed up and left. And so the, as a nurse was running that needle in, Melissa was standing there and she said, hey, let me tell you something, Pastor. Do you know that from one pint of blood, which you are about to give, four, four lives can be saved. Four people can be benefited from one little pint of blood. Oh, there's healing in the blood. Would you write that in, please? Healing. Healing in the blood of another. So we pray the prayer, His blood be on us and on our children. What are we praying? Ah, someone died to be my sacrifice. 
Someone died, Exodus, to be my deliverance. Someone died, Leviticus, to be my atonement. Someone died, Isaiah, to be my healing. There, let's go to the New Testament. The Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 26. Write in 26, please. And then I made a mistake, and so you're going to have to correct my mistake in the study guide. You're going to have to add a verse. It's 26, 27, and 28. I left out the most important verse. My apologies. Let's take a look at that study guide. This now is Thursday night. Mel Gibson does not begin his movie in the upper room. As we noted last week, he begins in Gethsemane. And by the way, if you weren't here last week, I hope you go to our website and download that teaching. A compelling journey to the Garden of Hell, as we called it. But he has flashbacks all the way through his movie, back to the upper room. You know why? Because the truth of the wooden cross must be understood through the truth of the wooden table. That's why. You have to have the table, then the cross. Because the Lord's sacrifice and the Lord's supper are inextricably bound together. So we've got to go. Let's go to the upper room. And let's go to chapter uh, Matthew 26. And let's pick it up here in uh, verse 26. While they were eating in the upper room, Jesus took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to His disciples saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took the cup and he gave thanks and he offered it to them saying, drink from it all of you. The old King James says, drink ye all of it. And we've always thought, those of us who've grown up with the King James, well, that meant drink everything in that cup and don't leave anything. That's not what he's saying at all. He's saying, all of you, please drink from this communal cup. But now I want you to catch the next verse, verse 28. Jesus says, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Metaphor number five, the blood is a metaphor of forgiveness. Would you write that in, please? Forgiveness through the blood. Forgiveness. His blood be on us and on our children, we cry out. What are we asking for? We're asking for salvation. We're asking for deliverance. We're asking for atonement. We're asking for healing. We're asking for forgiveness. One more text from the New Testament before our last text. First Peter. First Peter. Would you write in one, please, because it's the first chapter. Kim led us in a reading of the Scripture just a moment ago. I want to go back to that. First Peter 1. But I want to read it from the New Living Translation. This is, this is so refreshing from the New Living. Let's put it up. For you know, Peter writes, that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And the ransom He paid was not mere gold or silver. He paid for you with the precious lifeblood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. Chapter 2 now, verse 24. He personally, that would be Jesus, carried away our sins in His own body on the cross so we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. You have been healed by His wounds. God paid a ransom. Do you understand that there are people today, third millennium, who are being bought and sold as slaves? Go to the Sudan. Women and girls being bought by filthy men with filthy lucre. Buying humans like chattel so that they can do with them whatever their heart jolly well pleases. Bought and sold as slaves. Peter says, guess what? So are you and so am I. Enslaved by sin. Enslaved by death. But somebody paid the ransom. Write it in, please. The ransom. A metaphor, another metaphor for blood. The ransom 
The ransom comes through the blood. His blood be on us and on our children. All right, just seven. One more. One more. Ransom. This one. Oh, this is a beautiful one. Would you write it in, please? 1 John 1, right in the first chapter. 1 John 1, verse 7. Let's put, the, let's put the verse on the screen. There it is. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, purifies us from all sin. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we don't normally think about blood as being a cleansing uh, agent, do we? I mean, Wednesday, when I gave blood... It was just before House of Prayer, and so there was a kink in my, I can't believe this, there was a little kink in my, my uh, tube, and it slowed it way down, and so I didn't get up to House of Prayer until about uh, 20 after 7. And so we go, I went through the House of Prayer, had a wonderful service, and then I went back into my uh, study to do some, some work, and all of a sudden, about 9, 9.30, I'm saying, man, I feel some wet here, and I took my coat off, and there was blood all over the sleeve. That little cotton ball had gotten saturated and then it just went loose. <laughs> I went home and I gave the shirt to Karen and she had to pour it and soak it in hydrogen peroxide. Because blood for us is a stain, not a cleansing. And yet we've just read a verse that says it's not a stain, it's cleansing. It's the peroxide that will wash you clean. Write that in please, cleansing. See, that's the seventh metaphor. Cleansing. Through the blood. His blood be on us and on our children. In the scene of Christ's scourging, Mel Gibson practically soaks the set with blood. If you look on the screen right now, if you can bear to. I mean, it's everywhere. With every whiplash and flagellation, the blood splashes all over and when Jesus is nailed to the cross, the blood actually trickles through the nail protruding from the backside of the cross beam. Blood and blood and blood and blood and more blood. Almost as if an overabundance of blood is a requisite to its spiritual efficacy. And when you factor in Gibson's theological understanding, then you understand, you see why it necessitates blood as a symbol of vicarious suffering and physical pain and why he exhibited so much of it. But ladies and gentlemen, I will tell you that the actual gospel counts are muted about any copious shedding of blood. You know why? Because the biblical truth about Christ's shed blood is not dependent upon its physical quantity. It's dependent upon its symbolic quality. We've just gone through the Bible rapid fire sequence and what have we found? What have we found? That Christ's blood is a symbol of the sacrifice. It's a symbol of deliverance. It's a symbol of atonement. It's a symbol of healing. It's a symbol of forgiveness. It's a symbol of ransom. It's a symbol of cleansing. All of that with one little word. Blood. Blood. Oh, how much of God is wrapped up in that single word throughout Holy Scripture. In fact, jot this down. There might be a little blank space in your study guide. Would you write this down? Look at how many times the word blood appears. In the Old Testament, 362 times. In the New Testament, 98 times. Now granted, not every reference to blood is referring to Jesus and His sacrifice. But why the preponderance of blood? You know why? Because it's one little word that we can wrap our little minds 
minds around. We have a very limited vocabulary. Let's be honest. We're just like kids. You've got to read my friend Dan Smith's brand new book. His first book just came out a few days ago. Dan is the senior pastor of the La Sierra University Church. And the title of his book is, Lord, I have a question. Get it at the uh, uh, Christian bookstore here in town. Lord, I have a question. Very provocative. You'll be blessed by it as I am. Dan in this book tells about how when his little son Alex was a toddler, how Alex had about ten words in his entire vocabulary. So that when Alex saw a dog, he would say, doggy. And when Alex saw a cat, he would say, doggy. And when Alex saw a horse, he would say, doggy. And a cow, doggy. Daddy, doggy. And when Alex saw a car, he would say, car. That was going to be doggy, didn't you? And when he saw a motorcycle, he said car. When he saw a truck, he said car. When he saw a bus, he said car. Plane, car. Dan writes, he had to use one of those ten words to name everything he saw. Which makes the Bible writers and you and me just like little Alex, doesn't it? Because with our human puny little human vocabulary, we point at the cross, this, this grand fulcrum of divine love. We point at the cross and we say, blood, blood. Well, we do know that word, blood. And so God comes along to us and He says, I want to talk to you about sacrifice, but I'll use the word you know, blood. I want to talk to you about deliverance, but I'll use the word you know, blood. I want to talk to you about atonement, but I'll say blood. I want to talk to you about healing, I'll use the word blood. I want to talk to you about forgiveness, blood. Ransom, blood. Cleansing, blood. I want to talk to you, but I'll use one of your ten little words. I'll talk about blood. What a God. Puny little ten word vocabulary, and He says, I can get there from here. One word, seven meanings, four letters long, L-O-V-E, blood. It's my love. That's what I'm trying to tell you, is that I love you with my last drop of blood. I love you. Whoa. So much wrapped up in a single little word, which means, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, Get this, if you and I will pray the roar of the rabble, all right, His blood be on us and on our children. If we will pray that roar, you know what? We would be actually supplicating the throne of God for every gift that Calvary holds. My friend, may he rest in peace, Roger Morneau. I learned this from him. He read the story of Calvary every day of his life. I said, you know what? I could do that. I mean, that's not difficult. And so ever since, I've been doing the same. Every morning of my life. What do I read? Let me put the reference on the screen for you. Matthew chapter 27. Just 30 verses. Verse 27 through verse... Uh, rather, verse 24 through verse 54. 30 verses, it'll take you just two minutes to read them. But why not go to the place where all of heaven has been poured out in that blood to save the likes of you and me? And so I read it every day. Yep. But you know what I do? I always pause when I come to verse 25. And you can see it's just one verse into the reading. When I come to verse 25, I pause. What does verse 25 read? His blood be on us and on our children. And do you know what I do? 
I read those words quite literally to God. Now I want to show you something. So that I won't get past it. Is this true? Is it in, in fluorescent yellow? Yeah, so that I won't get past it. The big bright yellow says, stop here, boy. Stop here and pray. So that when I get to His blood be on us and on our children, I pray those words literally. I say, oh God, would His blood please be on me and my wife and our two kids. Please, Your blood be on us. What am I praying to God? You know what I'm praying to God? I'm saying, oh God, please, for my children and for my wife and for me. Would you bring your sacrifice? Would you bring your deliverance? Would you bring your atonement? Would you bring your healing? Would you please bring your forgiveness? Bring that ransom. Bring the cleansing for them. I beg of you, His blood be on us and our children, please. And then you know what I do before I hurry away? Because there's a little bit left to the crucifixion story. But I'll stop right there and I will pray for people who are on my intercessory prayer list. Oh God, your, bl- your blood, His blood be on me and my staff. His blood be on me and my colleagues. His blood be on me and my roommate. His blood be on me and my classmates. His blood be on me and my students. His blood be on me and my neighbors. Oh, His blood be on me and Benton Harbor, please. Please, His blood, His blood. One puny vocabulary word, but with it an infinity of meaning. His blood be on us and on our children. You want to know how powerful that blood is? I'm going to leave you two quotations. Read you a story and sit down. Here are the two quotations. In fact, you have them in your study guide. You want to know how powerful this blood is to pray upon someone else and to pray upon yourself? Let's put the quotation on the screen. Through the merits of His blood, you may overcome, emphasis mine, every spiritual foe and remedy every defect of character. Do you have defects of character like I do? Huh? Do you? Good news. Through His blood, you may remedy every defect, every foe, Oh, that blood. Blood over me. Blood over Andrews University. Blood over Benton Harbor. We're not dealing with some namby-pamby little coagulation here, ladies and gentlemen. We're dealing with eternity in one gift. His blood be on us and on our children on this campus. There's one other quotation. I want to put that up there as well. When Satan would fill your mind with despondency, gloom, and doubt, resist his temptations. Emphasis mine. Tell him of the blood of Jesus. Some of you are struggling right now with a, with a throttling, throttling temptation. I mean, it's killing you. You know it's killing you. You can't talk to your roommate. You can't talk to your teacher. You can't talk to your parents. You can't talk to your preacher. You can't talk to anybody. But you know. That it has you around the neck. And whatever it is, it is going for your juggler because it wants your blood. My dear friend, there's other blood in this universe. And when the tempter comes with his claws and has you around the Adam's apple, you say to him, "Tell, put that up again please, tell him of the blood of Jesus. It cleanses from all sin. You cannot save yourself from the tempter's power, but he trembles and flees when the merits of that precious blood are urged. He will flee. You tell him. You tell him about the blood 
of Jesus. Oh, we must, we must be praying that prayer for Benton Harbor. It's a city in turmoil right now. Pray to blood. Take the metaphors. Pray for the deliverance that is in the blood. Benton Harbor, Andrews University, you, me, His blood be on us and on our children. All right, I want to conclude with a story and an invitation. All right, first a story. From the most provocative book that I've enjoyed reading, Richard John Newhouse, Death on a Friday Afternoon. Wonderful book. In this book, he takes another book written by Peter DeVries, a novelist. And he reduces the book into just a few paragraphs. I want to read you what Peter DeVries wrote. The title of Peter DeVries' book, The Blood of the Lamb. Now, I'm going to warn you, this is going to be choppy. Because to take a whole book and put it into a few paragraphs, you're going to have to switch back and forth between first person and then just someone commenting on the book. So it's going to take a whole book. Here's what will help. If you close your eyes right now, you don't need to watch me. I'm going to read to you. Close your eyes and try to comprehend what you're going to hear with your ears. It's a powerful and moving story. Let your mind be drawn into the story. All right? Peter DeVries. In the middle of his life, the novelist Peter DeVries wrote The Blood of the Lamb about his 11-year-old daughter, Carol, who died of leukemia. She really died. This is the story of her death through another character. All right? Here we go. Carol was at the children's pavilion in the New York hospital. There, the main character, that would be Peter DeVries, whose name is Vanderhope, gets to know other parents going through similar ordeals, including the jaded Stein, that's the last name, another parent who announced the future is a thing of the past. Those words stick with Wanderhope, even though reassuring doctors talk about new drugs and about remissions that last for years and about promising new research into leukemia, child leukemia. Of course, says a doctor, they're working on it day and night and they're bound to get it soon. On his visits to the hospital, Vanderhope would stop by at the Church of St. Catherine to pull himself together and maybe pray. Stein, his buddy, despised religion and would not go in. DeVries writes of Stein, In this exile from peace of mind to which his reason doomed him, he was like an insomniac driven to awaken sleepers from dreams illegitimately won by going around shouting, Don't you realize it was a placebo? Thus it seemed to me that what you were up against in Stein was not logic rampant, but frustrated faith. Listen to this sentence. He could not forgive God for not existing. You have to think of that. He could not forgive God for not existing. Visiting parents in the pavilion try to keep the talk light, aside from Stein and Vanderhope, who meet and knock their heads together over the big questions of fairness and theodicy and what God might be up to if there is a God. Conversation in the children's pavilion goes on what's called by a kind of conspiracy of grace, end quote. It's a matter of pretending that things have a meaning when you know they don't. 
The realities encountered in this slice of hell, Vanderhoek concludes, mock any response other than rage and despair. Quoting Vanderhoek, rage and despair are indeed carried about in the heart, but privately to be let out on special occasions like savage dogs for exercise, occasions in solitude when God is cursed, birds stoned from the trees, or the pillow hammered in darkness. Day after day, week after week, Carol hovers on the edge of life. Vanderhope thinks of the slaughter of innocence, and it seems that God and Herod are one, destroying the babies. He tries to pray. He does not presume to pray that everything will again be all right. He prays for just one more year with Carol, rehearsing in his mind all that they would do together in just one more year. And at last the day comes when the news is good. The moral report is down to 6%, practically normal. Carol is in remission. She can go home tomorrow. The next day he buys a cake and he stops by St. Catherine's to offer a prayer of thanks. Mrs. Morano, the night nurse, is at her prayers there at the church and tells him that an infection is going through the ward like wildfire. I hurried into the hospital. One, one, One look at Carol... And I knew it was time to say goodbye. The invading germ or germs had not only ravaged her bloodstream by now, but had broken out on her body surface in septicemic discolorations. Her foul enemy had his will of her well at last. One of the blotches covered where they were trying to insert a catheter and spread down along a thigh. By afternoon it had traveled to the knee and by the next gangrened. The nurse whispers to Vanderhope that it's only a matter of hours now and that Carol's dreams will all be pleasant. I was thinking of a line of old poetry. Death loves a shining mark. Vanderhope saw her on her bicycle, the sun resplendent in her hair, the shining spokes at the piano practicing and the smile of satisfaction when she got it right. And he knew that none of this would ever be again. The nurse left, and he moved to the side of the bed, and he whispered rapidly in their moment alone, The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. Then I touched the stigmata one by one, the prints of the needles, the wound in the breast, that had for so many months now scarcely ever closed, I caressed the perfectly shaped head. I bent to kiss the cheeks, the breast that would now never be fulfilled, that no youth would ever touch. Oh, my lamb. Later in the middle of the afternoon, Carol died. Wanting to secure the unfathomable pain of the particulars, Vanderhope looked around for a clock I had guessed what the hands would say. Three o'clock. The children were putting their school books away and getting ready to come home. After some legal formalities, Vanderhope went to a bar and had a drink, and then six drinks, and then seven. And then he remembered the cake he had left in the church on his way out of St. Catherine's. He looked up at the crucifix over the central doorway, its arms outspread among the sooted stones and strutting doves. 
I took the cake out of the box and I balanced it a moment on the palm of my hand. Disturbed by something in the motion, the birds started from their covert and flapped away across the street. Then my arm drew back and let fly with all the strength within me. Before the mind snaps or the heart breaks, it gathers itself like a clock about to strike. It might even be said one pulls himself together to disintegrate. It was a miracle enough that the pastry should reach its target at all at that height from the sidewalk, the more so that it should land squarely just beneath the crown of thorns. Then, through scalded eyes, I seemed to see the hands free themselves of the nails and slowly move toward the soiled face, very slowly, very deliberately, with infinite patience. The icing was wiped from the eyes and flung away. I could see it fall in clumps to the porch steps. Then the cheeks were wiped down with the same sense of grave and gentle ritual, with all the kind sobriety of one whose voice could be heard saying, Suffer the little children to come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. Then everything dissolved, and Vanderhope, no longer able to stand, sat down on the worn steps of the church. Now the last line of the book. Thus, Vanderhope was found at that place which was said to be the only alternative to the muzzle of a pistol, the foot of the cross. His blood be on us and on our children. Whether you still grieve losing a child of innocence or today you grieve because you have lost the innocence of a child. There is someone in this universe who has shed his blood for you and me and he says, come to me, come to me and drink, drink from this. This is my blood shed for you. Now, here's the invitation. Next Sabbath, you and I have the opportunity to take that cup and drink what is the symbol of His shed blood. And I've got to tell you, for the life of me, I cannot think of a single reason why you or I would absent ourselves from the celebration of the Holy Communion. Instead, I can think of seven shining reasons why we need the cup of His blood. And so I hope, I'm praying that you'll be right back here next Sabbath at the foot of His cross. Oh God, You've heard our hearts. We promise it shall be our theme until we die. Redeeming love. And so, Holy Father, our prayer is a very simple one. But please know we mean it with all our hearts. His blood 
be on us and on our children. Amen.